you have a Bible, turn please to Luke chapter 10. In the Church Bible, that's page 1042. Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. <clears throat> We've been going through Luke, and this morning we're going to pick up at verse 38 of chapter 10. And then we'll follow this through until chapter 11, verse 13. <clears throat> but first I'm going to read just the last few verses of chapter 10. So beginning at verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord replied, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. The first thing to notice is that Martha is not cold towards Jesus. Verse 38 says she opened her home to him. She is among those who welcome him. And in fact, she's so eager to honor him that she's working on a Jamie Oliver special out in the kitchen. She's going to give Jesus the very best that she can manage. The NIV says in verse 40 she was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Literally, the text says she was distracted by much service. Martha is wearing herself out to serve Jesus. While her sister Mary is just sitting there, listening to Jesus. Martha is sure that can't be right. So she calls Jesus to back her up in verse 40. Lord, tell her to help me. But look again at what Jesus says. Verse 41. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, if we read this passage in isolation from its context, we might understand its message something like this. Jesus is saying a life of contemplation is better than a life of action. So the picture in our minds might be a kind of Christianized form of Buddhism. Don't concern yourself with doing things, just reflect, contemplate. But if we do consider the context of this passage, if we take notice of where it appears, we quickly realize that's not the point at all. The passage just before this is the story of the Good Samaritan that we looked at last week. Twice in that passage, Jesus says, do this. And what he calls us to do is show costly mercy to people in need. The hero of the story, the Samaritan, pours himself out in service. Last week we thought about just how much he poured himself out. So when we move straight from the story of the Good Samaritan to this incident, we understand that Jesus is not devaluing service here. Remember what prompted the story of the Good Samaritan. Look back to verse 27. The lawyer quoted the two greatest commandments. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Last week we said that the order of those commandments is important. Love for God comes first. But the story of the Samaritan made the point that if we truly do love God, our love for him will show itself in service for others. If we love God, then we will inevitably love our neighbor too. Jesus is not negative about giving ourselves to service. In fact, he commands it. At the end of the story, he says, go and do likewise. So then, what is the message of this little incident with Martha and Mary? Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus is going back to the first great commandment. Last week, we were shown that love for God will lead to love for others. Now we're being shown what's involved in loving God. In other words, we've looked at the fruit of loving God, that's service. Now we're going to look at the root that produces our service. The root of our service is loving God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And our passage this morning gives us two keys to loving God. Very simply, listen to God and talk to God. The first of these is the point of our little section with Martha and Mary. Listen to God. One theologian has said, the first duty we owe God is to listen to him. I think that goes right to the heart of what it means to love God. We must give him our attention. Yes, serving God is also part of loving him, but we dare not serve without listening. Look how Martha is operating here. She's consumed with her own plans to serve Jesus, but she's paying him no attention. And the one time she gives him attention, it's to shout for him to back her up. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha has set her own agenda. And as far as she's concerned, Jesus ought to fall in line with her agenda. Whatever he's saying to Mary in there, can't he see that there's work to be done? And it's so easy for all of us to fall into this trap. And we can do it with the best will in the world. We want to serve God. We see the opportunities in front of us. We make our plans and we plunge into a whirlwind of activity. And sometimes our communication with God gets reduced to just a few frustrated prayers about why he isn't backing us up in our service. Service is a vital part of the Christian life. But the first duty we owe God is to listen to him. Now we can't repeat Mary's experience exactly. We can't listen to Jesus talking to us in bodily form. But we can hear the same voice Mary heard as we listen to God's word. I think the song we just sang is so helpful. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Teach us, Lord, full obedience. Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. It's all about listening to God. 
That's the attitude we need to have when we come to Scripture, whether it's all together here or by ourselves at home. When we listen to Scripture, we are hearing God speak. So we must take the time to give Scripture our attention, both as a gathered body of believers and privately as individual believers. What we do must be shaped by carefully listening to God's Word. Our agendas must be set and reset by listening to God's Word. This is at the heart of what it means to love God. If we're too busy to listen to God, then we are failing to love Him the way we must. And it makes no difference if our busyness comes from doing Christian things. Jesus knew that Martha was slaving away to serve him. But he said Mary's decision to listen to him was better. It was better not because Martha's service was wrong. It was better because her service was being done at the expense of time at Jesus' feet. So God's call to service is clear. It's not an optional extra. But our service for God must never take the place of listening to God. If we're too busy to listen to God, then we're too busy. No matter how important our busyness might seem to us. And Mary's posture is important too. It tells us how we are to listen. She sat at Jesus' feet. That's symbolic of giving our full attention and of submitting to what we hear. That's how we must read God's Word, with full attention and with a submissive attitude. We are under the authority of God's Word. The first duty we owe God is to listen to Him. And second, in chapter 11, verses 1 to 13, those who love God will talk to God. Look at verse 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. At this point in Luke's Gospel, we're in no doubt that prayer is at the very center of Jesus' life. Again and again in the first ten chapters, Luke has mentioned Jesus praying. It's his habit to pray. And Jesus certainly doesn't try to hide it from his disciples. He wants them to realize that prayer must be central to their lives too. And the result is he doesn't have to get them interested in prayer. They've watched his pattern. Now they come to him asking to be taught. And if we want our families to be interested in prayer, they need to see how important it is to us. Not how many books we have on prayer, not how often we talk about prayer, they need to see that we pray. And notice too how this fits with the last little section. The disciples are taking the same position as Mary. They have come to listen to Jesus. Teach us to pray, they say. We want to pray your way, not our own way. And in response, Jesus gives them a model prayer. Look at verse 2. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. 
Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. What's the first thing that you notice about this prayer? It's short, right? Four sentences. Now certainly Jesus is not laying down a rule that prayers have to be short. In chapter 6, Luke told us Jesus spent a night in prayer himself. But at the very least, we can say that our prayers do not have to be long. The model Jesus has given us is simple and to the point. I know that some of you hesitate to pray in prayer meetings. There may be many reasons for that, but one reason I've been given is that it's hard to match the prayers that other people are able to pray. Well, the message here is forget other people. Can you match Jesus' prayer? Four sentences, simple and to the point then don't be embarrassed to pray in a prayer meeting. And if I can push it just a wee bit further than that, you have no excuse for not praying in a prayer meeting. Jesus does not ask for prayers of great eloquence from us. And so we can't use our lack of eloquence as an excuse. Well, then so much for the length of this model prayer. What about the content? What should our prayers be about? I think Jesus gives us six characteristics of prayer. Four of them in this model prayer and two more in the teaching after the prayer. The specific wording of this model prayer is less important than the characteristics of the prayer. We ought to pray in our own words. But we should aim for our prayers to have the same character as Jesus' prayer. So as we look at these, let's ask ourselves, are any of these elements missing from my prayers at the moment? Are any of these elements underrepresented in my prayers? How can I bring the character of my prayers in line with Jesus' model? And the first characteristic of this model prayer is that it's God-centered. And that might seem just too obvious to mention. But how often do we pray without really stopping to consider who we're talking to? Father, Jesus says, hallowed be your name. We're talking to the God who is both near to us, he's our Father, and at the same time he is frighteningly holy. So we will not approach him flippantly. We will not approach him as if we're talking to our mate. Nor is he the old man upstairs. He is God the Father Almighty. We don't approach him lightly. But yet neither do we hesitate or shrink back from him. He is our Father. He's a Father who loves us dearly, who wants to hear from us. Our reading from Galatians earlier reminded us that in Christ Jesus, we are children of God, co-heirs with Christ. Our Father wants to hear from us. And God-centered prayers will be most of all concerned for God's honor. Hallowed be your name means basically may you as God receive the honor that's due to you. Our prayers should focus on God being honored both in our own lives and in this world. That should be what drives our prayers. 
And if we take this on board, we may find that the emphasis of our prayers begins to change. As we're going to see, there is a significant place for personal petitions in our prayers, bringing our personal requests to God. But that should not be the main focus of our prayers. Our prayers should be centered on God himself and on the progress of God's kingdom. Jesus goes on to say, your kingdom come. Luke's gospel has talked a lot about the kingdom of God. We've said the kingdom basically means living under God's rule. And our prayers must be concerned for the extension of God's kingdom. More men, women, and children coming under his loving rule. More obedience being shown by his people. But we've noticed also that the kingdom is a package. The final part of the package comes when Jesus returns to earth. At that time, every inch of the new heaven and earth will thrive under his rule. There will be nowhere where his reign is disputed anymore. So when our prayers focus on your kingdom come, we will have this future in our minds too. However much we might be concerned about the present, we will pray with a longing for Jesus to return. We'll echo the prayer at the end of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus. Come and establish your eternal kingdom. Then in verses 3 and 4, our model prayer shows that our prayers must be dependent. When we talk to God about our daily needs, we're showing really that we depend on him. Refusing to bring requests to God doesn't show that we're superior or more holy. It shows that we're self-sufficient, or at least we think we are. First, Jesus mentions dependence for our daily bread. We need to notice that we're talking about needs here, the basics of daily life. So bread is shorthand for daily necessities. And so we might ask ourselves whether prayers about a pay rise or a bigger house are really what Jesus has in mind. Essentially, this element of the prayer follows on from Jesus' earlier instruction to his disciples. Remember, he told them to travel light. It was in chapter 9 and early in chapter 10. To avoid being burdened and distracted by possessions. Well, if we take that instruction seriously, we'll find ourselves living in daily dependence on God. We won't have a big nest egg to depend on. And Jesus may well have in mind the situation of God's people in the Old Testament. They relied on a fresh supply of manna every morning. It really was daily bread. It didn't keep until the next day. We're to have that same kind of daily dependence for material things. So we mustn't be furiously stockpiling our money and possessions. Let's use what we have for God. And let's show in our prayers that we depend on him to keep giving us what we need. But our dependence doesn't only involve material things. Jesus goes on to mention dependence for forgiveness in verse 4. We're dependent on God's forgiving grace every day. There will never be a day when we deserve his grace. We must keep that in mind as we pray. 
And skipping over the middle of verse 4 for a moment, Jesus mentions dependence on God for spiritual protection. Lead us not into temptation. In other words, don't give us over to the power of sin. Give us spiritual protection. Protection from our own fickle hearts and from the enticements of the devil. It's worth asking ourselves, do we really have an aversion to temptation? Or are we happy to play around with it? Would we be a little disappointed if God really answered this prayer? Psalm 119 says, Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. And that desire should show up in our prayers. Sin is repulsive to God. If we love him, we will plead with him for help to hate sin and to turn away from sin. Then look back to the middle of verse 4. Here Jesus shows that our dependence on God must be backed up by personal responsibility. Verse 4 begins, forgive us our sins. Then it goes on, for we also forgive those who sin against us. Now this isn't strictly a part of our prayers, but it must accompany our prayers. Our prayers must be backed up by personal responsibility. So if we pray for forgiveness, we must be forgiving people. If we ask for deliverance from temptation, we must also fight to avoid temptation. If we love to gossip, for example, yes, we must pray for God to deliver us. And we must avoid situations and conversations where gossip is likely to happen. If we have a problem with pornography, we must pray for God to deliver us. And we must make ourselves accountable to others. We must put the right kind of software on our computer. If we have an addiction to shopping, we must pray for God to deliver us. And we must hand over the credit cards to someone else. Our prayers must be backed up by personal responsibility. Otherwise, our prayers have no sincerity. They're just empty words. We don't mean what we're saying. Then there's a fourth characteristic of our prayers. It must be corporate as well as private. This is just an observation from verses 3 to 4. Look at the pronouns Jesus uses. Never I or my, but always we and us and our. I don't think that's an accident. If we are to follow Jesus' prayer, we will do a good deal of praying with other people. As it stands, this prayer assumes we're praying with other people. So however much we pray privately, we will also be praying with our brothers and sisters in Christ in twos and threes and twenties and thirties and forties. It's a very simple point, but I wonder how well we've grasped it. If we judge this purely on the numbers attending the church prayer meeting, we would probably have to conclude that we as a fellowship have not really grasped this. 
Sure, as church leaders, we have a responsibility to make the prayer meetings conducive to prayer. That's true. The way a meeting is led can make it easier or harder to pray. But that doesn't alter the fact. Our prayer must be corporate as well as private. The best way to help the atmosphere in a prayer meeting is for you and I to come convinced of the importance of corporate prayer, eager to contribute to corporate prayer. That will do more for a spirit of prayerfulness than any leader could do. Now, as we look at these characteristics, we certainly don't need to woodenly tick them off in our prayers like a checklist. But neither should we ignore this model Jesus has given us. We should be intentional about bringing our prayers and our approaches to prayer in line with this model. After all, that's what it's here for, to teach us to pray. And so I would encourage you to open this passage, say, for the next week or so, whenever you pray. Try to pray along these lines that Jesus has set out for us. At this point, Jesus' model prayer is finished. But Jesus isn't finished teaching about prayer. In verses 5 to 10, he says that our prayers should be bold. He tells a story to make the point that God is able and eager to meet our need. So pray with boldness. Look at verse 5. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend. And he goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. Because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And the one inside answers, don't bother me, the door is already locked. And my children are with me in bed, I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Jesus lived in a time and place with no 24-hour Tesco's. Food was not available then in the same way as it is to us. So if you ran out of bread, you either had to bake some more or you had to borrow from somebody else. And the man in this little story has received a visitor. He's described as a friend. But it's late. And his daily bread has gone. It's all been used up. What's he going to do? He doesn't want to let his new, newly arrived friend go hungry. Well, he has another friend, and he knows that that friend can help him. He knows that other friend has what he needs. But of course, his other friend is already in bed. And if his house was like most Middle Eastern houses, it only had one room and one bed. Add to that the fact that the animals tended to be brought indoors for the night. And you have an awkward situation. Waking up his friend will mean waking up his kids too. And maybe the donkey standing at the end of the bed. But the man thinks to himself, he has what I need. I'm going to go to him. 
We're told in the text the man goes with boldness and asks for what he needs. Another translation says he went with bold shamelessness. And yes, his friend grumbles and fusses. He's not delighted about being woken up at midnight. But, says verse 8, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Some translations say because of his persistence. But the NIV is correct to use the word boldness. The point here is not that the man got what he needed because he kept on knocking on the door. No, he got what he needed because he had the boldness to go and wake up his friend. His friend might not have been very pleased with him. He might have wished the man had gone to a different friend that night. But he wasn't going to turn the man away. And that's Jesus' point. We know that in human situations, if we have a need, and if we go boldly to a friend who has the resources to meet our need, then the chances are high that our friend will meet that need. They might grumble and complain about the inconvenience, but they will help us. And when we bear that in mind, we can see Jesus' point. Within human relationships, usually, if we ask boldly, and if the friend, we can, if friend that we ask can easily meet our need, then it's almost certain we'll receive the need. The need will be met. Now remember, Jesus tells this story to help us understand how a relationship with God works. And there are both similarities and differences between God and the friend who's lying in bed. Like the friend in bed, God has what we need. He is well able to meet our need. But unlike the friend in bed, God is not going to moan about meeting our need. He's not going to meet our need grudgingly. God is able and eager to meet our need. So if the man in need of bread could go with boldness to his grumpy, reluctant friend, how much more can we go with boldness to our loving, gracious God? So in verse 9, let's ask, seek, and knock. That's another way of saying, pray with boldness. Or as one writer puts it, God is approachable and should be approached often and with confidence. And finally, Jesus adds that our prayers should be trusting in verses 11 to 13. God is not only able and eager to meet our need, he also knows the best way to meet our need. So trust him when you pray. In verse 11, Jesus says, Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Notice Jesus does not say, come to God and he will give you exactly what you ask for. He says, God will give you something good. That's the point of the comparison with human parents and the gifts they give. Good human parents don't always give their child what they ask for. 
But if they give something different, it's not going to be something bad. So the son who asks his father for a fish may not end up getting a fish. But he isn't going to get something bad like a snake. He may not get the egg that he asks for, but he won't get a scorpion either. He'll get something good. Why? Because his parent loves him and knows what's best for him. The parent may know of something much better than a fish or an egg. When children get hungry, they know that they have a need. Now, they might ask us to meet their need with always and only sweets and crisps. But a good parent will sometimes insist on meeting their need with fruit or even vegetables. And that child may even learn to trust that when they make their need known to their parent, then what their parent gives them will be good, even if it's not what they actually asked for. Jesus says that's the kind of trust we can have when we bring our needs to God in prayer. And again, the point is, if this is how it works with a human parent, how much more will it be true of the all-knowing, all-wise God? The God who made us. The God who knows us better than we know ourselves. Verse 13 says, If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts. The sense says, If you, being flawed, sinful, imperfect people, can still most of the time discern what's helpful for your children, how much more can a perfect, sinless God? Jesus opened his model prayer with the word Father. And here, Jesus is showing us what kind of a Father God is. He's the Father who's supremely able and eager to meet our need. He's the Father who knows the best way to meet our need. So let's use Jesus' prayer as our model. Let's pray boldly. Let's pray with trust. The Father we pray to is perfect in his love and power and wisdom. We might bring a need to God and he might respond by meeting a deeper need we didn't even know we had. And in fact, Jesus ends by telling us the main gift God will give us is the Holy Spirit. But we might ask, if God is our Father, then don't we already have the Holy Spirit? The answer is yes, we do. If we belong to Jesus, the New Testament tells us we are temples of the Holy Spirit. He lives in us. I think what Jesus is saying here is that as we come to God our Father with our needs, the main way God will meet our needs is by causing the Holy Spirit to work in us. Our main focus tends to be on our outward circumstances, our aching bodies, our fragile relationships, our finances, outward things. But God's main focus is on transforming us from the inside out, working in us to make us more like Jesus. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, we are being transformed into his likeness. That's a description of what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. So yes, let's come to God with our concerns about our health, our job, our loneliness. Let's come to him with all of our heavy burdens. 
It's right that we bring those concerns to God. Let's bring them boldly to him. But let's understand this too. When God responds to our prayers, when he gives us a good gift, his main concern is to help us with our greatest need, the need to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So God may not give you the comfort you want or the physical healing you want or the money you want or the spouse you want, but he will give you the measure of the spirit you need to stay faithful to him. He will give you the measure of the spirit that you need to bear your burden, whatever that burden is. And in everything that he does in response to your prayer, God will be working to transform you from the inside out. God is supremely able and eager to meet our need. And he knows the best way to meet our need. So let's pray to him with boldness and also with trust. Earlier we sang, Speak, O Lord. Our first duty is to listen to him. And he has spoken through his word. So we're going to express our trust in him as we sing, first of all, what a friend we have in Jesus. And then we're going to pick up on the God-centeredness of Jesus' prayer as we sing, Let your kingdom come. If you stand.